The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take from me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet, <clears throat> scarlet yarns with, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamb, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and, all, and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. This is God's word. You may be seated. So we, this summer, we're looking at various lists in the Bible, and this is probably one of those lists I'm going to venture to guess that gives many of us pause and makes us wonder why it's in the Bible. And of course, I could have picked any number of passages uh, from Exodus or Leviticus or Deuteronomy and preached pretty much a very similar sermon. Uh, There's lots of lists in Scripture that have to do with worship, that have to do with the tabernacle or the temple and how, what, are, what are we supposed to do in there, uh, what materials to be used, how it's supposed to be organized. And, and uh, there's all these lists. This is just one of them. And the question is, why are they all in the Bible? And what do you do with them as you read through them, as you read through Scripture? So I'm hoping to answer these questions, and hopefully in a satisfactory way. So you'll be the judge of that, but I'll do my best to do that. So this one, this particular list, is a list of contributions needed to build and furnish the tabernacle. Now, if you're not familiar with that biblical story, after leaving Egypt, uh, Israel was liberated from slavery in Egypt, and then when they were in the wilderness, uh, the Lord commanded Moses to make a tent. Tabernacle is literally a tent that was placed in the middle of the camp. Uh, A couple of Sundays ago, we talked about the formation of the the camp, and you have different tribes and sort of this cross-like formation uh, being camped out. And then in the middle was the tabernacle, and the priests and the Levites were supposed to take care of it and minister to God and to the people there. That was the place filled with God's glory. At the end of Exodus, you will see that once everything is built, According to the pattern that God gave to Moses, God's glory fills the tabernacle. And that's where people would meet with God. This is where where God would speak to them. This is where offerings were made, sacrifices were were brought. And so many, many chapters in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are concerned with the worship at the tabernacle. Of course, the same rules and regulations about sacrifices, specifically priestly activities, apply to the worship at the temple that Solomon, King Solomon, built in Jerusalem. And the temple and the tabernacle are largely the same. The the temple is just a a, a, a kind of a permanent tabernacle. It was in in Jerusalem by, by God's command. But the same ideas are there and the same regulations apply. And then that temple that Solomon built was destroyed by the Babylonians and was rebuilt by the returned exiles under Zerubbabel and Joshua and Ezra and Nehemiah and then dramatically improved 
by King Herod, and that's the temple that you see in the Gospels when you read about Jesus and his interactions at the temple. So our passage today describes what was needed for the sanctuary, the kind of materials to make curtains and poles and clasps and priestly garments and oil and incense and, and all these details. And there's, like I said, there's more details in the rest of the Bible. All that was necessary for the kind of worship that the Lord desired. Now, that's the connection I'm making, is that these things are important because these things comprise the kind of worship that the Lord desires from His people. So I'd like to take time this morning to reflect on the nature of right worship, more specifically on corporate worship. How are we to worship when we gather? Should we gather to worship at all? And what should our worship look like today after the pattern of the tabernacle? So let's see what this passage can teach us. And I just have three headings to help us work through it. One, God demands our worship. God demands our worship. Two, God defines our worship. And three, God designs our worship around His Son. God demands our worship. He defines our worship. And He designs our worship around Jesus. Okay. So when I read Psalm 100 at the beginning of the service, and maybe if you've been around church a long time, that just feels normal to you. But if you haven't, and if you haven't read the Bible, and if you're not religious, I think this kind of language would be striking to you. And I mean the language of worship, and I mean the language that specifically calls us to worship God, calls us to praise Him. So in Psalm 100, for example... Uh, We are told to make a joyful noise to the Lord. We are told to come into His presence with singing. We are told to enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise, to give thanks to Him and to bless His name. Now, this is all in the context of corporate worship. We're supposed to gather and do these things together. This is what we do on Sunday mornings, for example. But the, the question underneath all these commands is, Why does God demand that we do that? Why does God demand our praise? Why does He command us to gather and praise Him? Why does He say in verse 8, in our passage, for example, to make Him a sanctuary? He says, make me a sanctuary. Make a place that is designed for worship. He cares about us so much that He says we need a specific place with speci- and is set up in a specific way so you can worship me, so you can fulfill <clears throat> these commands. Has it ever bothered you that God demands our praise? Now, some people are bothered by that. Some people dare not ask that question. But C.S. Lewis asked that question honestly in his essay, A Word About Praising. He admits that when he was considering Christianity, and even when he became a Christian in the early years of his Christian walk, this idea of God demanding praise and other people demanding that we praise God together really bothered him and became a stumbling block to him. Now listen to what Lewis says. We all despise the man who demands continued assurance of his own virtue, intelligence, or delightfulness. We despise still more the crowd of people around every dictator, every millionaire, every celebrity who gratify that demand. Thus a picture at once ludicrous and horrible, both of God and His worshipers, 
threatened to appear in my mind. So what Lewis is saying is that when, when we see somebody asking and demanding to be praised, we would say, that's not normal. That's not okay. It seems unhealthy. It seems like that person is self-absorbed. they just so insecure. They need somebody to always tell them they're great. So when God says that, C.S. Lewis says, this is a problem, isn't it? Why should God demand our praise and we be okay with that? And so he tries to answer that question. There are good answers to that, and I'll try to, to, to walk through his argument here because I think all of that fits into the idea of our text, which is, sets up the idea of a right worship. If we are to, to praise him, why should we do that? Is it okay for God to demand that? So this is what Lewis says. He observes that certain objects in nature or art deserve or even demand our admiration simply because it is the right response considering their beauty. So in other words, when you see a beautiful painting, it is normal to praise it. It is normal to admire it. When you see a beautiful mountain range it is normal for us to say it is beautiful and share that with someone else. Not to admire something worth admiring would be to live contrary to reality and ultimately to miss out. Now, applying the same logic to God, Lewis says, He is that object to admire which, or if you like, to appreciate which, is simply to be awake, to have entered the real world, not to appreciate which is to have lost the greatest experience and in the end to have lost all. What Lewis is saying is that some things deserve our admiration. Some things are so beautiful that it is right and normal and proper for us to direct our praise to it. But then Lewis goes further and points out that it is in the act of praise that we actually connect with that thing, or in our case, to con we connect with God, we experience God. He says it's in the process of being worshipped that God communicates His presence to us. In other words, God's demand that we worship Him is an invitation to be with Him and to participate in the revelation of Himself to us. Now, we see that in verse 8 in our text. God says, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. God says, one, worship me because it is exactly the right response to who I am. And if you don't worship me, you're disconnected from reality. And two, when you worship me, you meet with me. So make me a sanctuary where we can meet. Make me a sanctuary where you can praise him and really see me as I am. But then Lewis takes another step. He goes even further and proposes that praise and pleasure are connected. He notices that we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation, Lewis says. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. What Lewis means is that for us to, to really enjoy something, we must praise it. 
And his examples would be when you see a movie and you just like it, you just think it's the greatest movie you've ever seen, you are going to go talk to somebody about it. You're going to tell someone else that this is the greatest movie you've ever seen. When you, when you see, when you watch you know, a, a game where there's a dramatic conclusion, there's, they come from behind, they win at the last second, what do you do? You stand up and cheer. Even the, the, the most you know, emotionless people <laughs> like me, there's still that, that, that force within you to get up and cheer. Why? Because you can't enjoy it unless you also praise it. And so what, what Lewis is saying is that, and this is, listen to his conclusion. He says, in commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. So Lewis says the reason God demands our praise is because that's the only proper response to who he is. That's the natural response for us if we see him as he is. That in that praise, we begin a relationship with him. We actually begin to experience him as he is. He wants to dwell with us, and we get to enjoy him. So when the Lord commands us to worship him, this is all that is happening here. Now, A.W. Tozer, one of the most insightful writers on the subject of worship, not surprisingly, echoes Lewis and agrees with Lewis when he says, the blessed and inviting truth is that God is the most winsome of all beings, and in our worship of Him, we should find unspeakable pleasure. God is the most winsome of all beings, and in our worship of Him, we should find unspeakable pleasure. So why does God demand that we worship Him? Because by demanding our worship, God awakens us to the reality of His beauty and goodness. He invites us to experience Him as He is. And He offers us a gift of unspeakable joy for which all human hearts have ached since the fall of Adam. And this is what all the long Detailed descriptions of the tabernacle are ultimately about. It's telling us what worship is. It's telling us how to worship God and enjoy Him. They are invitations to see God as He is, to praise Him because He is praiseworthy, and by glorifying Him to enjoy Him. Now, if you couldn't follow C.S. Lewis's logic in my to be fair, imperfect interpretation of it. Let me give you an illustration that I think will help us. Let's say you run into an old high school friend whom you have not seen for many years. Now, you've heard that, uh, that he became a famous chef. In fact, you vaguely remember something on Facebook about a Michelin star and something going really well in his life. And then you run into him. And your friend is very happy to see you. You haven't seen each other for decades. And he insists that you come to his restaurant for dinner tonight. He just insists. He demands it. He just doesn't give you any way to wiggle out of, out of that coming. He says, you must come to my restaurant tonight and eat. Do you think he does this so he would, his ego would be boosted? Do you think he's doing that because he just needs the affirmation of as many people as, as he can find, that he's so insecure that he just needs his old friend to come and, and affirm and validate his skill? No, maybe, right? Very possible. But it's also possible that 
He simply wants you to have a great meal. And he knows he can make a great meal. And he knows that in all likelihood, you've never had a meal like that in your life. And he can give you this amazing experience by simply inviting you to come to his restaurant. And so he demands that you visit him. Just as God demands our praise, his friend, your friend demands that you come to the restaurant that very evening. And so you agree. You get there. You are seated at a nice table. You look for a menu, but there's, there's no menu given to you. Some other people have menus, but not, not you. The chef, your friend, comes out and says, I will cook for you. You don't need a menu. I will cook for you. By the way, I've never had an experience like that. <laughs> but I am told, I am told that when a chef offers to cook for you, you say yes. You don't ask him, well, what are you going to make? No, no, you just say yes. Because they're going to bring out the best that they have. They're going to do it in the way that they know is going to be most beneficial to you. And they'll figure out what to cook, how to make it, how to present it, how many courses. They will take care of all of that, and you will enjoy that meal. So as you are stuffing your face with the most delicious food you've ever had in your life, experience and flavors you didn't know existed in creation, the chef comes out and asks you, well, how is everything? And you can barely speak, right? And so you say, this is amazing. I've never had a meal like this. I mean, this, this is incredible. Thank you so much for, for inviting me, for giving me this gift. And your praise does not feel forced. Your praise doesn't feel like you're just trying to boost his ego or you're trying to, to assuage his insecurities. Your praise doesn't feel like you're just doing a favor for your old friend. You know, he's kind of one of those people that just need to be validated all the time, so I'll do it. No, it doesn't feel anything like that. It feels natural because it is exactly the right response to the reality you have just experienced. You've had an amazing meal, so the right response is praise. And you have enjoyed it so much that you want to hang out with that person more and more. You don't want to lose contact with, with this friend anymore. So what you're saying, as you're leaving the restaurant, you're already texting him and saying, when can we get together? Let's, let's do coffee and, and catch up. And by the way, do you know how to make coffee? And <laughs> you can't wait to tell everybody about your experience that this friend has given you as a gift. Now, it's a silly illustration, but it is what worship is. This is, or it should be, our experience of worship. All the elements are there. Relationship, the beauty and goodness that you discover, the enjoyment of it, the praise that goes beyond that experience and involving other people. We gather to experience God as He is in worship and to enjoy Him. And that is why the Bible is full of commands to praise the Lord. It's not because the Lord needs it, right? The Lord doesn't need our sacrifices. The Lord is not hungry. But the Lord demands praise because that is the right response to who He is. It builds a relationship with Him and gives us a gift of joy and pleasure. 
Now, the second question I want to answer. So that was the question, why do we worship, okay? The second question is, how do we worship God? Look at verse 9 in our text. The Lord says to Moses, Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. Apparently, God not only cares that we worship Him, but also how we worship Him. So He says, do it exactly as I tell you. Exactly as I tell you. Only certain materials are to be used in the tabernacle. Its structure and measurements are set with no room for deviation or for human improvisation. The furniture, too, is made according to precise specifications and placed in specific spots in the tabernacle and the temple. There are regulations about everything. That's why we have so many lists in the Old Testament. We have so many chapters devoted to the temple and the tabernacle because there are so many regulations about everything. Priestly clothing. I mean, this is is very specific, very exact, what they are to wear, how they are, are to put it on. There are regulations about the composition of the oil for anointing. You can't just make your own and and bring it to the priest. No, you have to make it exactly the way the Lord wants it to be made. There are regulations about which part of the tabernacle serves what and who's allowed where, which animals can be sacrificed, when, where, and for what sins. Everything is exactly specified. And all of that came directly from God. Now, the temptation for a modern reader to say is is to say is that's just the the legalistic people. You know, they just like to complicate things and didn't need to be that complex. It didn't need to be exact. No, no, no. God demands that it is this exact. God says, exactly as I show you, he says to Moses concerning the pattern of the tabernacle. I'm going to give you the pattern, and you do it exactly as I told you. Now, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5, tells us that the tabernacle and later the temple was a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. It's a copy and shadow of heavenly things, which means that God has given the pattern of something that exists in reality. There are spiritual realities that are true that are now expressed in these very specific regulations of the tabernacle. So none of this is accidental. It simply reflects something very important. It points to something really significant. And so every detail of the Old Testament regulations of the tabernacle is important. And it's specific to something else. It's a shadow and a copy of something else. Earthly worship was to be done according to a heavenly pattern. In other words, we don't know how to worship God. In our sinfulness, we don't know how to worship Him rightly. So God teaches us by giving us earthly copies of heavenly things which are undistorted by sin. We cannot see God clearly, and thus we cannot worship Him properly unless He changes us and instructs us in our worship. So God decides what right worship is. God defines acceptable 
worship. Now, do you remember in the Gospels, there's several accounts, parallel accounts of this story where a woman comes to Jesus and anoints him with this very expensive perfume. So she comes with this alabaster jar, breaks it open, and just, just extravagantly pours out this, this very expensive, and I would imagine very fragrant, uh, perfume on Jesus. And the disciples just go a little crazy, right? They're like, this is such a waste. I mean, imagine if we sold it, how much money we could make, how much good we can do, how many poor people we can help. So what do you have here? You have two ideas of worship. Here's a woman that comes and, and with this extravagant sacrifice, offers it to Jesus, right? And the disciples are saying, no, that's not proper worship. That's not right worship. You're supposed to sell it and then spend the money on something that Jesus cares about, like the poor. So which, which approach is right? Which is proper worship? Who decides that? Well, Jesus decides that. And Jesus, here's what Jesus' response. He accepts her worship, right? And he says, she's done a beautiful thing to me. By pouring the ointment on my body, she prepared me for burial. Jesus says, it is true worship because it's in line with who I am, what am I about, and according to what I say. So Jesus accepts her worship because it actually reflects who Jesus is. Jesus, who came to die for us, was going to be buried and, and, uh, and, and redeem us from our sins. So she's actually reflecting a heavenly reality in the earthly worship by bringing this extravagant gift to Jesus. And Jesus says, this is true worship because it's in line with how I define worship, not how the, 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 the disciples who are, who are really concerned with efficiency and, and getting things done right. That's not proper worship. But what Jesus says proper worship is, that's what it is. All right worship is defined by God himself, and it happens in response to his own revelation. Everything is to follow his word. So when Jesus says, this is the right worship, that, that is the right worship. When Jesus says, worship me this way, then we worship him this way. When God says to Moses, do everything according to the pattern of the tabernacle that I've revealed to you, exactly as I've revealed to you, Moses says, yes, we'll do it exactly as you've done because you define worship, not us. God defines worship. And so in worship, we submit to God. We don't change him, we change, we change. We enter his reality. We, we change to meet, meet his standards. We conform to him and not try to conform him to us and our ideas. Now listen to this, this classic definition of worship from William Temple. He says, worship is the submission of all of our nature to God. It is the quickening of the conscience by His holiness, the nourishment of mind with His truth, the purifying of imagination by His beauty, the opening of the heart to His love, the surrender of will to His purpose. All this gathered up in adoration, the most selfless emotion of which our nature is capable what is Temple saying? He's saying our, our conscience needs to be quickened. 
by His holiness. Our mind needs to be nourished by His truth. Our imagination needs to be purified by His beauty. Our heart needs to be open to His love. We need to surrender our will to His purpose. We are not coming whole to this. We're actually coming and we're saying, God, you change us. You make us into the kind of worshipers we need to be because we come broken. And so you need to change us and you need to teach us how to relate to you and how to worship you. God is the initiator and instructor of our worship. If we can ever worship him aright, he needs to initiate it. He needs to reveal himself to us. He needs to speak to us. And then we need to respond according to his instruction. And only he can enable us to worship him as we should. Remember, Jesus said the true worshipers worship the Father in spirit and in truth. True worship happens according to the truth revealed by God and comes from the hearts changed by the Spirit of God. Now, we even see it in our text in verse 2. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution from me. You see, this is spiritual worship. It has to come from within. It has to come because my heart is moved to offer something to God. But how can my heart be moved unless God moves it? And so worship has to be in truth. God has to reveal himself to me. Otherwise, I don't know who he is. And it has to be spiritual. It has to come from within. And it has to come because the Holy Spirit can move me from within so I can actually worship him. Now, when you read about Israel's experience of worship in the Old Testament, you find this constant tension between following the pattern that God laid out for them and inventing their own forms of worship. And it's the same now. It's the way it is now as well. God says to use blue, purple, and scarlet yarn. But we say, eh, might be better to replace it with green and yellow. These are nice colors. Why not add more color to that? And mahogany might look better than acacia wood. Let's just make a couple more pieces out of different wood and put it in different places. I think that would really improve the tabernacle, we say. Come to think of it, maybe a statue, let's say like a calf, say make it out of gold. I mean, that would really, really increase our experience of God. If we can see him, if we can imagine him, if we can make him out of this, this, this glistening metal. And why, let, why limit worship to Jerusalem? Samaria is a nice city. Let's just set up some, some places here. In fact, you know, any high place would do. And how about Bethel and Dan? I mean, it's a far journey to Jerusalem. Why don't we bring those temples nearer to us so people don't have to travel as much? They'll worship better. They'll worship more. Do you see how what happened in Israel and what's happening today is us inventing how we are to worship God? And we're saying, we will do it better. We, we can fix some of these problems that we see in worship. We can make it better. We can make it more of an experience for us. In 2014, there was a book published by Kelly Bean. Uh, it was called How to Be a Christian Without Going to Church. Now, 20 years, almost 20 years ago, uh, in the evangelical circles, there was a lot of conversations about kind of, you know, kind of leaving behind institutions and structures of the church. 
Uh, and so people were not quite saying then we should just be done with the whole thing. They were just saying, let's just adjust it and make it better. So maybe we don't need to gather in church. Maybe we don't need to have elders and deacons. Maybe we don't need to read the Bible together. But we can still follow Jesus and it'll still be good. Now, the conversation has moved 20 years later. We're not largely talking about that. We're just talking about, let's just leave the whole thing behind. The whole thing is toxic is what we're talking about now. But back in those days, 20 years ago, a lot of the conversation was, how can you be spiritual and Christian and a follower of Jesus outside of the structures and institutions of religion and of, of the church? And so let me read from a review of Kelly Bean's book that quotes some of what she's saying. Now, now I will tell you that this was, this was offered unironically at the time. Okay, So what she's advocating, what I'll read to you, was something that was offered sincerely and unironically, and people were discussing these kinds of ideas. In chapter 6, the reviewer says, for instance, the author advocates that believers may experience the presence of Christ, not by worshiping at church, but by making napkin rings, doing art, and baking together. As she concludes, is anyone up for a pickle-making party? or a living room songwriting session, Jesus will be there. Was the argument. We can worship in all kinds of ways and Jesus will show up. Now, friends, if you know me, you know I am passionate about pickles and pickling, right? <laughs> a fan of pickles. But it's not the same as worship. It just isn't. And I do believe that Christ shows up in all sorts of places and circumstances, and God is with us because he will never leave us or forsake us. And yes, when you're making pickles, God is there, yes. But it's not the same as worship. This is the kind of worship that, that Kelly Bean advocates for, is worship initiated and defined by human beings who are so affected by sin that they think making pickles is the same as prayer. That's why the disciples went to Jesus and they said, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray because we can't figure it out on our own. You have to tell us what prayer is. Otherwise, we're lost. We're just going to come up with all sorts of craziness. So you teach us to pray. And so every Christian goes to God and says, you teach us to worship. You show us what it means to worship. You define it. What do we do when we gather? Do we make pickles or do we pray? What do we do? You tell us, and we will do it exactly after the pattern that you give us. Now here at Chatham, it's because we believe that worship is defined by God and not by us, that we are very careful about what happens here on Sundays. Very careful. Our order of worship is deliberately structured to reflect how God wants us to worship Him. When we come to worship, we respond to God's revelation of himself and we follow his pattern. We read and preach his word. We gather around his table. We sing praises to him that are informed by scripture. If you listen to the hymns and songs that Ryan picks, they're not just random songs. They're full of biblical meaning. They're full of truth. The melodies allow us to worship together and sing together. We don't sing songs that are hard to sing for everybody because the point is for us to sing together. 
We read and preach from the Bible. We gather on His table. We sing praises to Him. We pray. We bring our offering. And we leave challenge to obey and participate in His mission. Not my mission, not your mission, but His mission. So God calls and we gather. God speak and we, speaks and we listen. God gives and we receive. God sends and we go. That's our worship service. There are four movements out of Isaiah 6. This is how we worship. Because we want to worship according to the pattern that God gives us. Now, of course, there's flexibility. I mean, we can talk about what, what the best way is to order a worship service. Should we have communion in the beginning or at the end? Yeah, we can have those conversations. But the fact that you need to have certain things in the worship service is, is, is non-negotiable. Because God tells us how to worship Him. Because God defines worship. And the main thing that is non-negotiable, no matter how you arrange the worship service, is the centrality of Jesus Christ. Because everything in God's view of worship is designed around the person of Jesus. So let me end on this. The tabernacle was a temporary place of worship. Eventually it was replaced by the temple in Jerusalem, rebuilt again, improved. But we no longer worship at the temple. Why? Because the copies and shadows have been removed. And the true temple has been revealed. Now listen to John 1.14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now the word dwelt, the, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Dwelt means pitched His tent or tabernacled. That's what the word means. So when John says... Jesus came, the Word became flesh, God became human. He's saying God became part of the tabernacle of worship. Jesus came and pitched His tent among us. This is the presence of God in us. The glory that filled the tabernacle in the wilderness now fills the world in the person of Jesus Christ. Now when Jesus cleansed the temple, the Jews demanded a sign from Him to validate His authority to regulate proper worship because Jesus did not think what they were doing in the temple was right. It wasn't right worship. So he cleansed it. And the Jews said, well, what sign will you give us to prove that you can do these kinds of things, that you can define worship? And Jesus says in John 2, verses 19 through 22, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. What is going on here? What is Jesus talking about? Jesus says, I am the true temple. I am the true temple where people meet with God where people are reconciled to God through my death and my resurrection. So when he rose again three days later, the disciple says, ah, that's what he meant. This is the rebuilt temple. The resurrected Jesus is the new temple. 
This is where God dwells. This is where his glory is. This is where we meet with him. This is how we are to worship him, through Jesus. Now, the book of Hebrews is written to show us how Jesus fulfills the various old covenant types and patterns, including the pattern of the tabernacle. So listen to Hebrews 9, 11, and 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. If the tabernacle and later the temple was a shadow and a copy of the heavenly reality, Jesus didn't just bring a sacrifice in the earthly temple, he brought the sacrifice in the heavenly temple. And because he did that, now all our worship happens according to the realities of heaven. That's why we don't have temples, we don't have sacrifices, we don't have priests. All of those are shadows and copies, but in Christ they have been fulfilled. And so right worship, and this is where it gets very relevant to us today, right worship is designed around the person of Jesus Christ. Where there is no Jesus, there is no worship. Now, some Christian churches have combined services with Jewish synagogues. And there's lots, lots of things in common, right? We can even use some of the same prayers, some of the same scriptures. But a Christian cannot worship at a Jewish synagogue or at a Muslim mosque because there's no Jesus. A lot of other things can be right, but if there's no Jesus, that worship is not right. And according to God, it's not worship at all. It's idolatry. And just as the Lord instituted one place, right, one tabernacle, this is where all the worship happens. This is where all the sacrifices are brought. This is where God's glory dwells. This is where God said, I will meet with my people over the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. Just as there was one place, there is one person. And there is one way to God. If worship is relationship with God, there's only one way to have relationship with God, and that is through the, Jesus, the, the, the sacrifice and the victory of Jesus. There is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is exclusivity of worship in the tabernacle that points to Jesus and then now in Jesus. Jesus Christ, Hebrews tells us, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is, he fulfills all those patterns. He is the lawgiver, he is the liberator, he is the redeemer and the ransom of Egypt. He's the Sabbath rest for God's people. He's the great high priest after the eternal order of Melchizedek, merciful and faithful able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. He is the single final sacrifice able to perfect worshipers for all time and securing our eternal redemption. He is the founder and perfecter of our faith. He is our shepherd. He is the son that's honored by God, and in him all of us are honored. And so our worship is designed around him. 
So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need as we gather on his day, the Lord's day, to hear his word, eat at his table, and leave to do his work.